Hebrews chapter number 4. I believe the text is 14 through 16. I will read, and then Mike is going to be uh, covering the life of Jesus. I said, Mike, what's the key text? And he's like, the four Gospels. And I said, I could read them all. Uh, that would just uh, cause a little bit less time for you. So, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we turn our hearts to your word, we ask that uh, you would use Mike uh, to deliver your words in your heart, that we would be shaped and molded to uh, reflect our Savior Jesus more accurately. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome everybody to our second week of Advent. We're focusing, as many of you already know, on the incarnation this year, the fact that God became flesh last week on the birth. Anthony's going to talk about the death next week. And as John mentioned, I get everything in between. <laughs> so the challenge today was to choose a single passage to talk about. But before I go into all that, I want to mention uh, Brianna's choice of the song preceding this message. It was just perfect. Brianna, there you are. Uh, we can look full in the wonderful face of Jesus because he has one. And that's what I want us to dwell on today. Jesus has a face. Jesus has a body, and he chose it to be one of us. That's what we're going to spend the whole morning on today. But as I mentioned, I've got a bit of a challenge that is sort of consistent with my, my life here at Union Church ever since we began attending. The very first sermon these two pastors invited me to preach, you might recall, they invited me to preach on the Song of Solomon. They invited me on my first sermon at this church to navigate that minefield of, of a Bible passage. I bailed on that. Uh, then they invited me to preach the entire book of Romans in one, in one sermon. You might remember that. That was a bit of a challenge as well. So this week is kind of consistent. Uh, I have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as my text for, for today. Uh, in light of that fact, we are going to bounce around a little bit, uh, although we are going to touch on the passage I had John read in Hebrews. We're going to read several others as well, because as you can imagine, the life of Jesus is a daunting task to cover in 35 to 40 minutes. Uh, so appreciate your prayers as we go through this. Uh, the complication of this assignment is a bit, uh, a bit ironic because <clears throat> I am a guy who likes to simplify. More now in my, I'll use the phrase, uh, twilight years, gray hair years, whatever you want to call it, I like things to be simple. I don't like things with lots of buttons where I don't know what half of them do, right? Every time someone comes to my house and borrows my TV remote, I tense up, my blood pressure goes up. Because they're going to hit a button I've never hit. And I won't know how to fix it when they leave, okay? Anyone else like me? Are, are we? My wife got me an Apple Watch. I worked on it for 10 minutes and said, this is too complicated. <laughs> I can't figure this thing out. Simplify has become such a key word in my family that recently in a family text thread, we were talking about something we were doing as a family, and my oldest daughter texted, I can just hear dad saying to mom, simplify. <laughs> so much so that this year, this year we looked around after we got done with Christmas, uh, as we started Christmas decorating, I turned to my wife and said, look, our schedule's a little different this year. Uh, 
first of all, you got to realize I am the Christmas tree guy. And always had been the Christmas tree guy, right? The bigger, the better, decorations everywhere, lights and ornaments and all this stuff. Well, this year, our Christmas schedule is a little different. We're not going to be here on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. We're traveling to Southern California to be with the grandkids and the rest of the family. So a lot of you are in the traveling mode as well, I'm sure. And I turned to Murph partway through the beginning of our decorating. I said, look, we're not going to be here on Christmas. Should we bother with a tree this year? She looked at me and said, who are you, tall stranger, and what have you done with my husband? <laughs> and yet, we chose to put aside the tree this year. So it's a, the house is a little bit simpler. I'm, I'm a guy who likes to simplify, to the point where, if I had been in heaven prior to the coming of Jesus, and, and word began getting around among the angels what was about to happen, that the creator of the universe was going to take on human form and be born and expose himself to all the cruelties of the world he created and the, the pain and the suffering and the violence. And if I was bold enough to serve as a consultant to God in that moment, and we all know God needs no consultants, so don't call me a heretic. This is just a sermon illustration. Chill. Uh, I might have said something like, Lord, simplify. This is one complicated plan you've put together here. Can you imagine what is involved, the logistics alone of trying to make this happen, where God takes on human form and lives among his people, doesn't just go down and visit and come back, but lives among us for what turned out to be 33 years. The question is shouting out to be answered, why? Why was this incredible project necessary? And to give some context to it, we have to understand that, that God had been to earth before. His arrival in Bethlehem in human form wasn't the first time he visited this planet. Most uh, Bible scholars believe that when you see the phrase in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, more often than not, that is a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus to earth. We know that because that angel of the Lord, not an angel from the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, when that's the phrase, he receives worship from people he visits. Angels never do that. Angels say, no, 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 don't worship me. And yet the angel of the Lord does. So on several occasions, we were pretty confident that Jesus came down prior to his birth. He'd been here before. He knew how to get here. He knew how to interact with people without being born as a baby. So the question remains, why is this necessary? for the second person of the Trinity to become a human being. Today's focus in the next few minutes will, will, will hopefully answer that question. It won't give you all of the answers, as you could imagine, but hopefully some significant ones, and ending with one that frankly surprised me this week as I began digging into it. I didn't see that one coming. I didn't realize it would be as important to me as it is. And I'm looking for, I may skip the others just to get to that one <laughs> because it jumped out at me this week. But no, I'll, I'll go a point at a time. Would you pray briefly with me? And let's ask God to speak today. Lord Jesus, thank you for this complicated plan. Thank you for what you've done. Would you speak today into our hearts? Would you speak because we are your servants and we are listening? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I've got five answers for you today to the question, why was the incarnation necessary insofar as it applies to the life of Jesus and the 33 years he spent walking this earth among us? First reason, 
Jesus was born to perfectly fulfill all the commandments that Israel as a nation had failed to honor. He makes that clear several times in the Gospels, including in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Let me read that for us. Where am I? Oh, I left my Bible verses on my chair. I'll just read the screen. How's that? Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In the context into which Jesus was born, remember, he's born to, as a part of the nation of Israel, as a Jew, as an Israelite. And that nation, that chosen people, had been chosen by God to receive his will, to receive his commandments, and in theory at least, to obey them, to become a set-apart people in all the world, the one that knew the God of the universe and obeyed him. And yet, the history of the Old Testament shows us that they weren't very good at that obedience part. They were constantly falling short as, as human beings, as sinners, as we would have also in their place. And then along comes Jesus, born uniquely, born without that sin nature that every other human being has ever had. And Jesus, as he lived that life among us, he basically became a display of what total obedience to the Father looks like. He came to fulfill the law, to obey it, to, to live it out and embody it. And Jesus summarized the law with two phrases, the, the Old Testament commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then he said the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we look through these four gospels, we see that Jesus obeyed these commandments. He fulfilled the law. He did what God had given Israel for them to do, but they fell short. Jesus accomplished it. He loved the Lord, he loved the Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, like some of you, maybe, I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke, one dense chapter a day through the month of December. When you start on December 1st, you finish on Christmas Eve, the, and you spend the whole month of, who else, I see nodding heads, who else is doing that as a project this year? Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually, this year, I'm reading all the study notes in my study Bible <laughs> for each chapter. So I'm really digging into each chapter. I'm at chapter 10 this morning. And as you read, I'm struck by how often Jesus went off to be with the Father, how, how important prayer was in his day-to-day -day life especially before big moments and big decisions, and, you, and the way he poured his heart out to his Father, and, and how involved he was in regular communion and communication with God the Father. He loved the Father with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And he defined neighbor the way God wanted Israel to define neighbor, the way he wants all of us to define neighbor. Not just those like us, Jesus didn't just love his Israelite neighbors. He loved his Roman neighbors. He loved his Gentile neighbors. He loved people beyond the us versus them categories that were normal in his day. He loved the Samaritan neighbors. He loved everybody around him. And in doing so, he fulfilled that law. And he basically embodied all that the Old Testament predicted he would be. After his resurrection, you might recall, he... He, was, uh, he had a little fun. I, uh, there's no other way to look at the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus without picturing a gleam in Jesus' eye as he comes alongside these guys in resurrection form, and he's walking with them toward the city away from Jerusalem, and they're bemoaning what a terrible week it had been, and the man they thought was going to be the, the next big thing 
wound up being killed by the Romans, and they're, oh, we had such high hopes for him. We thought he was going to be something. <laughs> okay, and now he's gone. And then Jesus gently rebukes them and, 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 and basically conducts a Bible study with them which if ever I had the chance to be transported back to one single Bible study in the entire Bible, this would have been it. Because Luke 24, 26 through 27 tells us this. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you like to study the Bible, could you imagine what that Bible study must have been like? As the author of scripture, walks two disciples through all the prophecies and all the things in the Old Testament that he had fulfilled, that predicted him, that what he would do and who he would be. And, and you, should, you guys should have gotten this idea. I had to die because that was prophesied, that was fulfilled. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that, uh, in that little Bible study. So he came to fulfill the law to the point where uh, the website gotquestions.org responds to a question this way. Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus' purpose was to establish the word, to embody it, and to fully accomplish all that was written. Christ is the culmination of the law, Romans 10.4. The predictions of the prophets concerning the Messiah would be realized in Jesus. The holy standard of the law would be perfectly upheld by Christ. The strict requirements personally obeyed, and the ceremonial observances finally and fully satisfied. He couldn't have done all that if he had come as he had previously, in adult form, with, with a message to the people of Israel as the angel of the Lord. Those commandments were given to humans. He had to live a human life, to, to live them out and to obey them. And you can almost get a feel, I'm maybe imagining this, I might be going too far with this, but I can almost get a sense of all of creation watching the life of Jesus and celebrating and saying, finally, somebody got it right. Finally, somebody has taken the obedience and the love of the Father and the love of the neighbor and done it. Jesus checked all those boxes. He lived that perfect life that God was asking the Israelites to live. And by the way, in doing so, Jesus set a very high bar for those among us who hope they can be good enough to earn their way to heaven. And by the way, a lot of folks think that way all over the world. Someone in here might think that way right now. You might be thinking, I hope one day when I stand before God, they'll have that scale out and the, the, the yucky stuff I do will be on one side, but the good stuff will be on the other, and I hope I can be good enough that my, my good side will outweigh my bad side, and God will smile at me and say, come on in. All right? If you want to know how good you have to be in order to have that happen, all you have to do is be like Jesus all the time, every day, all your life. If you succeed in that, you're in. You should also write a book. <laughs> you should, I won't go any further with that. No, but let's face it, that's not going to happen for anybody. So Jesus lived out that perfect life that if we, if we count on being good enough for God to let us into heaven on our own because of how good we are, he set the bar so high that I hope as we even think about it, as we laughed a moment ago, we can say, wow, 
there's got to be some other way to get there. Because if it means I have to be like Jesus all the time, if that's the only way to get into heaven, I'm cooked. Happily, it's not. We'll get to that too. Actually, Anthony will talk more about that next week because he came for other purposes along the way to, uh, to make, that, make that possible. So that, that's the first reason Jesus came. He was born to fulfill the law. Secondly, he was born to reverse the damage that Adam had inflicted on creation. We're going to get a little into theological weeds here now, so if that's not your thing, bear with me. But if it is, you're going to like this. Uh, the book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians, compares Jesus to Adam and uses the same word to describe them both. It talks about the first Adam and the last Adam. And in taking that same kind of idea, the book of Romans talks a lot about Adam and Jesus and compares them. We're going to compare and contrast Adam and Jesus for just a few minutes. Here's how Romans 5, 18 through 19, does that compare and contrast. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That, that compare and contrast from Adam to Jesus is fascinating. Because when you look at what we know about them from Scripture, you find some points in common and then some significant differences. Both Adam and Jesus went face to face with Satan. If you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, a chapter a day, that happened just this last week, as Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, faced temptation, and conquered it. As opposed to Adam and Eve, who faced temptation and failed. Both Jesus and Adam were tested in a garden. The Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. So in those areas, they have something in common. And the results, of course, of those two tests were radically different. Adam failed the test. Jesus succeeded. Adam said, let my will be done. And Jesus prayed to the Father, let your will be done. Adam hid from God because he knew he'd failed. Jesus cried out to God in the midst of his testing, obeyed him, and was welcomed back into heaven. And as Romans says, Adam brings death to all who follow him, which is all of us. Jesus gives life to all who follow him, which is hopefully all of us. That contrast from Adam to Jesus, I, I find really, really fascinating. Uh, Ligonier Ministries has this quote about this whole idea. All who are ordinary descendants of Adam are in Adam, that's the phrase you see all through the book of Romans, for instance, until by regeneration, faith, and repentance, they move from being in Adam to being in Christ. In Christ is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite phrases in books like Ephesians. Where am I? If we are in Christ by faith alone, we receive forgiveness of sin and our Lord's perfect righteousness, by which we're accepted by God. In sum, those who are in Christ will get back what they lost in Adam. But more accurately, what we will get back will be better than what we lost. As John Calvin comments, Adam, by his fall, ruined himself and those that were his, because he drew them all, along with himself, into the same ruin. Christ came to restore our nature from ruin and raise it up to a better condition than ever. Christ can do this because he is the last Adam, the federal head whom God appointed in his mercy to stand in for us, 
so that we will become the glorified saints God intends us to be. The glorified saints God intends us to be. I hope you find that an amazing phrase. <laughs> we'll get to that again in just a few minutes. And again, when he came as the angel of the Lord prior to his birth in Bethlehem, Jesus wasn't able to be the last Adam. Adam was a human being. And in order for his failure to be undone, another human being had to step in and, and be the, the righteous person, the, the obedient man that Adam could have been, should have been, but wasn't. So that's why he was born and lived among us for 33 years. Okay, theological weeds are done. Let's go to the third reason he came. He was born to assure us that he understands our lives. We're getting now to the passage that John read a few minutes ago. Think about this. Jesus was born into a world of many gods. Every culture around the people of Israel had their own god or gods. It was always gods, actually. And you look down through human history that mankind is always inventing a god somehow. Those invented gods have either been pieces of wood or stone carved into a face or some kind of a shape and put in a temple and worshipped and sacrificed to. Or in the case of Greek and Roman gods, they're, they're mythical figures who live someplace far away but have very little in common with our world except the chance to exploit it and, and laugh at us occasionally, okay? None of these man-made gods understand human life. They can't. They've never been human. They don't get us because they've never been us. A piece of rock carved into a face, what does that know about trying to live and trying to feed a family and, and trying to get a job and trying to overcome illness and all that? What do, what do Zeus and Mercury know about human life and, and how could they really relate to us even if we wanted them to? It's impossible. Man-made gods don't understand human beings. But the king of the universe gets us. He became one of us so we would know that. Let me look again at, at Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, the verse John read. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he lived among us, because he grew through the various stages of human existence, because he, he knew what it was to look for food, to go hungry, to sprain your ankle, to be frustrated, to be tired. We see all of that in Scripture, and we know that he knows and he gets us. And that's not, not just meant to assure us and, and give us warm fuzzies. The Hebrews passage says clearly, because we know that, we're invited to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where Jesus sits. We're invited to come there boldly. Why? Because he's not a stranger. Because he's not locked away on Mount Olympus or, or stuck in a temple. He knows your life. He understands your life. And you can come before him knowing you are praying to a sympathetic God. Because he has been here and walked among us. In that amazing act of incarnation, Jesus made himself ultimately approachable. He gave himself human ears that could listen. He gave himself human arms that could embrace. Human eyes to shed tears. And human hands to help. 
So the question is, do we approach him? Do we relate to him as knowing fully that he, as a human being to this day, we'll get to that in a minute, that's the fun part, as a human being now, he does understand. He does get us. And he does sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands temptation. He never gave into it. He never sinned. But he knows what it's like to be drawn towards something, to be called to disobey. He gets it. And he sympathizes, it says, with our weaknesses. So do we approach him? Or do we relate to him as if he were an idol somewhere made out of stone? Or a a Zeus up on Mount Olympus? It's a little bit too easy for us to fall into those traps, isn't it? And, and, And to forget who he is because of the incarnation. Max Lucado has a quote that I I really like. That I like it because it pushes me a little bit. Maybe it'll push you too. Parts of this quote aren't really easy for me to read, but I, I want us to chew on it for a minute. For 33 years, Jesus felt everything you and I have felt. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. His head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It does a little bit, doesn't it? It's a little, ooh. But it's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. He's easier to handle that way. Let that sink in. He's easier to handle that way. Something about keeping him divine also keeps him distant, packaged, and predictable. For heaven's sake, don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. Ooh, that was a goosebump moment. (laughs) Only if we let him in to the full humanity that he embraced, and didn't just take for a minute, but lived a full life among us. Only if we recognize that and accept him as a fellow human being, divine though he is, only if we let him in can he pull us out. That's the third reason I believe Jesus lived among us for 33 years, according to Scripture. The fourth one is this. Jesus was born to be the mediator between God and mankind to bridge the gap that we created. When when you look at the whole scope of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you see this incredible story playing out that's hopefully familiar to to most of us. At the beginning, of course, mankind had this unique closeness to to the Creator. Nothing else in creation was made in the image of God, just us. Nothing else could relate to him the way human beings could, just us. That image of God that was given to Adam and Eve included the potential for rebellion. And of course, as we know, they gave in to it. And that rebellion took the closeness between creature and creator and replaced it with a vast chasm, a gulf, impossible to cross from a human perspective, creating a problem that Job recognized in his struggles as he wrestled with who is God, where is God, I'm suffering, my life stinks, I've got got a complaint, I've got a point to make with God, and I don't know how to go about it. 
He recognized that problem, a problem which Jesus ultimately solved. I'm going to look at two passages back to back right now. The first is Job's complaint in Job chapter 9, talking about God. For he's not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both and serve as a bridge. And Job missed that. He wanted that. He lamented the absence of that. And God knew that that gap was such a problem, but he had a plan all along to fix it, a gap that is mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Don't lose the word man in that phrase. The man, the human being, born in a manger, lived among us 33 years, blood in his veins, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, God knew that problem existed, and it didn't surprise him. Scripture says from the very beginning, from before creation, he had this plan to invade creation himself, to step into the world that he made through the incarnation, through the body of a virgin and laying in a manger and then living for 33 years, he became that mediator who understands human beings and understands God, and could bring the two together in himself. Friends, that is an amazing principle that God himself invented, that God came up with. And when you think about it, it kind of blows your mind to know that was the plan all along. Ray Steadman puts it this way in his quote, talking about Job now again. Out of the deep darkness that surrounds this suffering saint, Job, a ray of light breaks through. It is the first break in Job's gloom. What is needed is a mediator, an arbitrator who can come between us, who understands us both and brings us together, Job says. For the first time in this book, we begin to see what God is producing in this man, Job, why he's putting him through this protracted trial. For now, Job begins to feel deep in his bones the nature of reality, the terrible gulf between man and God that must be bridged by another party. We who live in the full light of the New Testament know that he's crying out and feeling deep within the need for just such a mediator as Jesus himself. Job is laying the foundation here in his own understanding for the tremendous revelation that comes in the New Testament when God becomes man. God takes our place, lives as we live, feels as we feel, solves the great problem between us and God, and brings the two, God and man, together. For the first time in Job, we begin to sense what God is driving at. Job felt the problem. God knew about the problem. God had a solution for the problem. Jesus is the solution for the problem. Because he came, because he was born, because he lived, he brings the two together. Bridging that gap required, of course, that he would be willing to sacrifice himself. That the ability to bring sinful man and a holy God together meant someone had to die. I'm going to let Anthony touch that next week as he talks about the death of Christ. And now the fifth reason for his life, as I mentioned, is the one that surprised me this week. I, I did not see coming my fascination with this idea. that Something I, I probably knew intellectually, but it never really mattered much to me until about Wednesday. <laughs> this last week. Jesus was born to restore mankind to the exalted position for which we were created. 
And to grasp the reality of that, we have to understand this idea. And here I'm stepping on John from next week, but that's okay. Uh, uh, two weeks from now. Uh, I'll give Anthony space, but I'll step on John's sermon. <laughs> That'll teach you to give me Song of Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus took that human body in which he was born, took it with him into heaven. That sounds like a simple thing to say. But as I chewed on it this week, it became something alive and something that mattered. The body in which he was born and was crucified and was buried and rose again, he kept with him. Remember, after his resurrection, he, he proved his, his physical body to his disciples. Come and touch my wounds. Come, watch me eat a fish. My body is still human. That's the body he took with him when he went up into heaven. And one day he'll return in that same body. The result is this. And, and, I'm not sure I can unpack all the details of this next phrase, but it really became something that mattered to me. Here it is. There is a human being on the throne of the universe. Right now, there is a human being like us, full, in his body, fully divine, of course, but also, also still fully human. He didn't set it aside when he went back to heaven. He's going to bring it back when he comes. He's going to reign forever in that human body. There's a human being on the throne of the universe, someone like us. And that was God's plan all along. I want to read two quotes about this because it's, it's more important than just having one. <laughs> Let's read, first of all, David Mathis puts it this way. Advent is a chance not only to celebrate Jesus' taking of human flesh, but also his keeping it. It wasn't a mere 33-year stint, impressive as that would have been. Jesus is forever the God-man. He is glorious, not merely in assuming our human nature, but in remaining our brother and continuing as the invisible image, as the visible image of the invisible God. To put in the Apostle John's language, the word became flesh. His humanity isn't a costume. The eternal divine son didn't simply make a cameo in the created world. He forever joined our humanity to his divinity and for all eternity will be fully God and fully man. One of us is on the throne of the universe with a human body, fully God and fully man. One more quote. I, I, I couldn't leave this one out because it's so good. Dane Ortland says this. One of the doctrines in the area of Christology that is difficult for some Christians to fully grasp is the permanent humanity of Christ. The impression often seems to be that the Son of God came down from heaven in incarnate form spent three decades or so as a human, and then returned to heaven to revert back to his pre-incarnate state. But this is Christological error, if not outright heresy. The Son of God clothed himself with humanity and will never unclothe himself. He became a man and always will be. This is the significance of the doctrine of Christ's ascension. He went into heaven with the very body, reflecting his full humanity that was raised out of the tomb. He is and always has been divine as well, of course. But his humanity, once taken on, will never end. I said a minute ago, I, I'm not sure why this grabbed me so much this week. I, I, can't unpack, I can't unpackage it and repackage it and put a bow around it and tell you why this idea has suddenly mattered so much to me this week. I, I'm still chewing on it. But something about it has me really excited. Something about the way it ennobles humanity, that it dignifies 
human bodies, that, that, that God's creation of us is his, is in his image has a whole new perspective. When you realize from the beginning, he planned to come into that human body and let it fully reflect his image. And to, to, in doing so, to undo all the stains and all the problems with the image that developed over the centuries. I'm still chewing on this and will be for a while, I think. But I want us to let the humanity of Jesus sink in. I want us to stand amazed at this plan God established and carried out to perfection. That was the plan all along from before creation, scripture tells us. He planned to become one of us for these five reasons and a whole lot of others. And as we chew on them and as we reflect on them, I hope we will have a phrase that I coined a few years ago. It's one thing to have a wonderful Christmas, but I hope as we chew on these ideas, we will have a wonder-filled Christmas. That as we think through the incarnation and think through the various reasons he came and the life he lived, that we'll stand in awe. And it'll add something new to our worship, add a new step of boldness when we come into his presence, as we are aware of his love and his humanity, as well as his divinity, and that the incarnation of Christ will give all of us a wonder-filled Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we do stand amazed at your plan and the implementation of your plan and the care and the perfection of it all. Lord, would you give us that wonder-filled Christmas that we yearn to have? Would you make us more and more amazed at who you are and what you've done? Would you allow us to celebrate your incarnation this year in ways we never have before? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.